Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the first of 2024. Retired businessman Robbie Brothers arrived as a teenager in Hong Kong on New Year's Eve 1960. He was 19 at the time and was starting a job with Wheelock Marden in shipping. Five years earlier, in 1955, Hong Kong industrialist Lawrence Kadori had made a speech recommending a cross-harbour bridge. That would later become the Cross Harbour Tunnel, opened in the summer of 1972. Robbie Brothers was at the centre of that project and tells me about the financing, those who were for and against, and the technology behind this tunnel made of separate tube segments. But first, let's go back to a teenager arriving in 1960 on a comet. I was offered a job here with one of the well-known companies, Wheelock Marden. I've always regarded myself as very lucky. So I came out New Year's Eve 1960, was met by somebody who was dragged out of a New Year's Eve party <laughs> and then spent 30 years with Wheelock Marden, very happy years with a very nice lot of people. So how come you're coming out in 19? I was offered the job. Which was? Uh, which was assisting as an assistant with Wheelock Marden's shipping department. Right. And so I was, of course, very junior, and my first job was to go through the cables because each word in a cable cost a dollar or something, and uh, I had to paraphrase it so we could save a few words. So if the marine superintendent wrote a 40-word cable, I would get it down to 20 words and save so, money. So describe, yeah, so we'll, we'll start right there because it's sending cables, which will be a, <laughs> yeah. an alien concept to... Yeah, that was my first job. Yeah. It's always taught me to be as pithy as possible, <laughs> to be concise and as pithy as possible. So you're age 19, you come out to Hong Kong. Where are you coming from? I came from London. Actually, I had worked six months with Wheelock Marden's London office. So I knew the founder of the company, George Marden, who I was terrified of, but actually a wonderful man. And then I came out here to work for the shipping department. So describe to me with the, the cables. So it's not telegram, is it? It's like a telex? It's or... a telegram. It is a telegram. A telegram is all yes. wor- it, just as it always telex was. Telex hadn't come in at yes. that time. So you just had to create the words, or are you going... No, no, the superintendents would create the words. I just had to... to. I was told they were very verbose, so, you know, try and make it shorter. And who were the marine superintendents? Nice people that had come down from Shanghai, because Wheelock Marden was founded in Shanghai. So they'd come down from Shanghai. One of them lived in the Hong Kong Club. We used to plot the movements of typhoons on our marine charts. We had a lot of fun, actually. It was good. There were good days. And where was your office based? Union House. Union House is now where Chater Building is. We overlooked the site where the Mandarin Hotel is now and the old St George's Building. Before that was redeveloped as well. So this is 1960, you're arriving in Hong Kong. Was this the first time to Asia? Yes, it was. My father had been here, he was in the Navy. So to start off with, it was a job in London that happened to be in shipping? It wasn't even in shipping in London. (laughs) George Marden had a company called Landell Trust, which was the first company to own insurance syndicates. And he floated it in the London stock market. And I stayed back to help with the flotation. But you were so young. Well, you you know, we didn't feel so young. Today, if I look at somebody of my age, of course, I regard them as children still. But we were given a lot of responsibility in those days. And it was good for us, I think. 
So at the age of 19, you are coming to Hong Kong on New Year's Eve? By Comet. By Comet? Yes, by Comet. So that's a type of plane? Or? Oh, you don't know the Comet. The Comet was the first four-engine jet before the 707. And unfortunately, due to some problems with the body, there had been a number of accidents, decompression accidents causing crashes. Two of them had crashed. So they were not particularly well pressurised, which actually affected me because I had a bad cold at the time. So we went up and down about four times and I was totally deaf when we arrived in Hong Kong yes. as a result of that. Did you do overnights or just No, no, a no few nothing hours? like that. We just went on. It was, I can recall very well. We went to Zurich, Tehran, Karachi, Bangkok and Hong Kong. <laughs> And, and each time is just a few hours? Yes, just as it is today, yes. really, but it's still a long trip. So when you are starting off, so you're starting off in the shipping department. During the 1960s, Hong Kong is expanding. But was this where the idea that starts about possibly having a bridge or a tunnel across the harbour? Well, that was, of course, nothing to do with shipping. But after two or three years in the shipping department, the management decided that uh, they would pass over the whole of the shipping management side to Mr. Y.K. Pao. Uh, Y.K. Pao was at that time becoming a very successful ship owner and Wheelock Martin had 50% in the company at the time. So it was a logical step to take. So essentially that left me at a loose end. But it so happened that Wheelock Marden, John Marden and Dougie Clegg of Hutchison and Lawrence Cadore and R.C. Lee, Dick Lee of Lehigh Sand Estates were promoting the building of a bridge. And they'd formed a company called Victoria City Development Company to secure the franchise from the Hong Kong government. So I was basically told to get on with that. That's how things were done in those yes, days. Yes, that's so very Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're now part of this Victoria so City... So I'm in charge of yeah. City Victoria City Development Company, negotiating with the Hong Kong government, meeting all these wonderful personalities yes. like Lawrence Godori. Tell me a little Dick bit Lee. about him. Lawrence was the most marvellous man. I really do regard him as one of my mentors, and I used to go and sit in St George's building for hours, really, listening to him. And he had just become a contractor himself. He'd built a reservoir over at Castle Peak. And so he said, I know how to deal with these contractors. And he taught me exactly what we should do, taught me how we should do it, set all the rules, etc., which I followed. And as a result, we eventually ended up with having the tunnel built on time and within budget. It was all, and I, that was entirely due to Lawrence Cadore. The Cross Harbour Tunnel, was it originally going to be a bridge? It was. Everybody saw it as a bridge. Lawrence Cadore had made a, quite a well-known speech, which he published in the Rotary in 1955, promoting the bridge. He lived, of course, in Kowloon and had very much the Kowloon people's interests in mind. And so that's how we presented it to the government who looked at it and took advice. In the end, they came back and said, look, the bridge, which is going to run more or less the same line as the tunnel is today, it's just too close to Kai Tak. And if planes have to, taking off, they have to veer off to the right, it could create a danger for the people using Kai Tak and, and people on the bridge. 
So we cannot approve a bridge, but we will approve a tunnel. The fact that it was at Causeway Bay, could it have been anywhere else? Is that the shortest bit across at uh, that time? <laughs> well, it, well, it was the place where we could have had the bridge, because that was really why Dick Lee of Lehigh Sand Estates, if you know, if you think of Lee Gardens and all mm, that area. That's where he that is. That was a hill, yeah. yes, and that could have been a basis for the bridge. But it also was the logical place, and there was a lot more land around at that time. I mean, Hong Kong was just a reclamation. So it was a, a logical place to build it, and it, and it still proves today the most popular tunnel. It's more popular than the other two tunnels. You're now heading up Victoria City Development Company, yeah. dealing with the government, mm-hmm. and uh, also, as you say, there's these four major Hong Kong companies who are involved. Mm. Um, so despite Lawrence Kadori putting this idea of the bridge forward in 1955, logistics dictate it's going to be a tunnel. tunnel yes. So how does the tunnel begin now? Well, uh, now we had the permission from the government. We had to draft the franchise. The franchise had to be drafted. And we had to employ consulting engineers to do the design, go out to tender, follow the normal process. So we appointed Scott Wilson of Hong Kong and Freeman Fox of London to be the joint consulting engineers. And so they drew up the plans for the tunnel. And so by about 1965, we were ready to go. Were people in favour or were they a bit suspicious about this idea of going underwater? (laughs) Yes, they were suspicious. Uh, The people in Hong Kong Island were very concerned about these hordes from Kowloon coming over to Hong Kong and flooding the island. And I think the people in Kowloon were not too keen to have the snotty-nosed people from Hong Kong going over there either. So there was not really a, a demand at the time for a tunnel, I mean, strange though it may seem. And of course, Jardine Matheson owned uh, the Star Ferry. They lobbied against it. The Lau family owned the Yamati Ferry Company with the car ferries. So they were lobbying against it. And there were numerous articles written for, and about. there was a lot of discussion going on. But it was by no means uh, a popular move, I would say. We had a lot of hard spade work to do to get the idea even accepted. So in the Legislative Council and with the Governor, I mean, was there the political will to get it through, never mind the business one? Yes, I think so. The, the Financial Secretary at that time was John Copperthwaite, who was succeeded by Philip Haddon Cave. And I think the government realised that uh, this was the way to go, that uh, we had to progress. We couldn't always take a ferries across the harbour. So we did get support from the government, but they had made it very clear when they gave us the franchise that their priority was hospitals, schools, welfare of the people. So if private enterprise would build it, fine, but the government didn't want to put any money into it. So was it private enterprise in the end? It was private enterprise, yes, it was. But only after quite a bit of trouble, because I said we were ready in 1965, and in 1966 we had uh, the riots in Hong Kong, and 67, it was a very difficult time. So the chances of raising money were really very slim. It was very difficult to get money, despite the fact that we had very good shareholders and it was a good project, etc., People had no confidence in Hong Kong and it was the chaos in China. It was all a very difficult time. What was David Trench's view of it? Well, he was the governor at the time, yes. I really had no dealings with him. I dealt with the financial secretary. They were supportive of the government and indeed they basically had to be because when we couldn't raise the finance for it, we decided to reorganise the company so that Wheelock Marden and Hutchison increased their shares 
the Qataris reduced their share, particularly status share, and the, with the reduction of the shares and the reorganization of the company, the Hong Kong government took 5% and the Hong Kong bank took 5%. And of course, that having the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong bank as shareholders gave a huge amount of confidence mm. in the company. So 68, 69, Hong Kong was coming out of its problems. And we actually were negotiating with a French company who were prepared to provide the financing as part of the construction finance. And the British government, who hadn't been too helpful, suddenly heard that the French were going to do it and could do it. (laughs) And so it suddenly changed overnight. And ECGD, which was the export finance arm of the UK, said they would finance the project. So uh, So what happened to the French? um, Well, I felt guilty about it forever after. But it was obviously clearly in the best interests of the company to go over to the British. And so we did that. And... Costains, a large British company, were appointed as the contractors. Is your job basically project finance? or No, no, my job was running the, this company. I just was the, the centre of it all. and um, Specifically for the tunnel? Yes, and we were appointing consulting engineers. We had to pay right, them. Okay. We had to deal with any number of people. And as the tunnel was being built, we had to employ staff and all those. It was quite a lot to be done. It went well. By and large, uh, the only construction hitch was that one of the units which were being built on Hong Kong stuck on the slipway, and that caused some problems for the contractors. But eventually, the tunnel was ready to be opened in the summer of 1972, and that was 33 months after the start of the construction work. So the consultant said, well, we can't open the tunnel because we haven't got the toll booths in. So I said, look, don't worry about toll booths. We'll just get cash registers and use those for the time being. And that's what we did. So we actually opened the tunnel in July. And then in um, uh, What, and you just had people sitting in the middle? Yeah, that's right. Well, we had people with cash registers. You know, we weren't going to have the tunnel sitting idle there. So your cash register people, were they just on little platforms or...? Yes, they were. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea. (laughs) And of course the toll booths were being built and at least we had some cash coming in. Let's go back to, so 33 months prior, you've now got people on board, it's beginning to happen, but the construction itself... The Cross Harbour Tunnel, was that based on another model? Uh, yes, well, it was uh, what the system was called immersed tube. Basically, it was a tube lying on the harbour bed or a dredged channel into which the tubes were put. And it had been used in Holland, I think, was the first uh, place where a similar tunnel had been built. It was uh, an established basis of doing it. And, of course, all the subsequent tunnels have been built in the same way, essentially because there's not enough land in Hong Kong to provide the approach roads and all the rest of it that you would need if you had a board tunnel. We'll talk in a moment about these tubes or parts of tubes being created then put in position. But... The other process, bored tunnels, is like when they bore for the MTR, those massive, massive machines mm. that you could just go under where the water is. You, you could do. I mean, that's how the Channel Tunnel was built. And, of course, if you're going to have, like, the Tate Scan Tunnel, going through a hillside, that's how they do it too. But because of the longer approaches, in order not to have very steep ramps, it would just have used too much land. Whereas if you're laying the tube on the seabed, the ramps down into the tunnel need not be so steep. 
When I regularly go under the Harbour Tunnel, what I'm going under is steel. <laughs> yes, and concrete, uh, and water, of course. But no, the steel was constructed on Hung Hom. It was steel tubes. They launched the steel tubes into the water. So where did they make them in Hung Hom? On Hung Hom. Yeah. It was like a shipyard there. So they would bring out the steel from the UK. They would do the assembly on Hong Kong reclamation. The units, I think 14 in all, were launched into the harbour, floated out into the right position, and then concrete would be pumped into the unit. So the unit is sealed on both sides? It's units and sealed down. You can get at it from the top, yeah. and then you pump in concrete. And um, So what was it, a massive lighters or cranes taking yes, these? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was a very special piece of kit which held the unit in place. So really the steelwork was formwork for the concrete. The strength was still in the concrete, as are all the other tunnels today. And then you've got a great big concrete, so a vessel with liquid concrete to, to pump in. Pouring it in, yes, yeah. that's right. And um, and so, so did you do a tube by tube? Yes, that was it was one, one by one in, in the right order. And that's why when one stuck, it caused a bit of a problem because it interfered with the contractor's programme. So you've got these tubes that are going down. Do you also have divers? Yes, you did. You had to lower the tubes down into place and then one tube would go up against the former tube and then by letting out a small piece of water in the barrier between the two units, you would create a very considerable force which would push the two, two units together and then you could cut out the barrier and get on with whatever work had to be done inside the tunnel. I've never really thought about that. How deep are we when I'm going under? Good question. <laughs> it's a long time ago. I think we must be about uh, 10 metres deeper. So did you actually have engineering divers or construction divers yeah, who also we went did. down to check? Yes, we did. We had good yeah. divers. And of course, it was quite murky, the harbour. Yeah. But they were able to make sure everything was done properly. But it was essentially, it wasn't a complicated scheme and it did work very well. So you had about 14 units to create this tube. They go down sealed. Sealed from the top down there. A little bit of water is let out from the uh, the interior of that. And then the, the whole of that sea pressure on top of the unit pushes the two together. So in the summer of 1972, you have a relatively new governor at that time, Maclehos. He must have been there at the opening. Well, he was, but the tunnel was opened by Princess Alexandra. We had Angus Ogilvie on our board, we not Martin board, so she came out and she officiated. And Angus Ogilvie is... Angus Ogilvie was the husband of Princess Alexandra. Ah. He was uh, on, on the Wheelock Marden board and uh, Princess Alexandra was, of course, part of the royal family. So she came out in, uh, I think it was sometime in September, I can't remember the exact date, and we had the official opening. And what did time. she have to do? <laughs> I think she had to cut a ribbon. <laughs> I think that was about all she, she could do. We've been running for three months by oh, then. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, so we had Testing to, it yeah. out. Did you actually have, um, I mean, it, 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 you know, at the beginning, of course, you've got to check that everything works. So what happens? I mean, you've got all of these tube parts that you've put together and you, you're gradually seeing this. So at both entrances, I presume people were walking in to have a look, all the engineers? Well, yes, engineers were walking in. And as for so glorious time we could use the tunnel ourselves as our private tunnel to cross the harbour which made us feel very important and everybody else had to take the ferry and we could just drive through but that was only for about three months so. <laughs> what was an early car of yours 
by car at that time, it was a Sprite, an Austin Healy Sprite. Oh, very nice. Yes. <laughs> the Austin Healy Sprite going through the empty at uh, that time. Well, uh, actually, I must tell you another story about that because I told you we, we opened in July early and Fiat, who were represented in Hong Kong by Hutchison's, sent out their car, which is a very valuable car. And the idea was to have a procession of vintage cars going through the tunnel as part of the opening ceremony. And an Italian came out with it. He was the only man allowed to drive this very precious car. And he had Lydia Shum in the car, yeah, TVB. One, wonderful actor. comedian. Uh, the fear that was led by the car. And there were lots of other beautiful cars behind them. Number two uh, place was Michael Cadori in his uh, Bentley. Old Bentley, 1928, I think it was. So what was the Fiat connection? Why would they have been the Because first? Hutchison represented Fiat. Ah. And they're Touring Motors, and they had the Fiat agency, so it was an important agency for them. And so had all of these classic cars, as you say, going through the tunnel as um, part of this opening ceremony. Yeah, we actually had the Peninsula uh, cater for a banquet on the toll plaza. Oh, as well. Right. It was a very hot day, though. It was perhaps the weather wasn't too good for this sort of thing. But anyway, that's what we did. Peninsula chefs with their hats on and uh, the invited guests, etc. So we had really two ceremonies. The one was this particular ceremony on the, in July and another formal ceremony when Princess Alexandra came out for that. Also, I mean, if we're looking back at 1972, I mean, I remember talking to historian Dan Waters, my old friend, and uh, he was basically saying if you had a car in the 60s, it was pretty easy to park because there just wasn't that high level of car ownership. Mm. But by the time we're hitting 1972, would you have said there was a lot of transport? It was very, very different. I don't know if we had our coin-eating tigers at that time, but it was there were car parks. I mean, it's true. In the early 60s, you could just drive down to Central and you can park where the Hilton Hotel, uh, now Chen Kong Centre, was there, or you could go to Murray Barracks, and that was an open area. You could park in Statute Square free. So it was quite easy, but of course... And so the coin-eating tigers are your name for the meters? That was a Chinese name. For the, <laughs> it's a Chinese name for the meters. <laughs> the Cross Harbour Tunnel has been formally opened by Princess Alexandra in September 1972. And what sort of traffic is going through? Well, we, of course, had had extensive traffic reports in order to justify the financing. So this was a concern for us. And I do remember on the first night or the second night going down into the tunnel with my wife one evening and counting the cars going through because we didn't really have any records with our cash registers. We didn't know quite how many cars were going through. And as it was, it was about 22,000, I recall, a day at that time. And the tunnel capacity was reckoned to be about 50,000. One of the criticisms these days is just the huge tailbacks that you get, particularly because people prefer this tunnel. And I know their government is trying to make moves in order to, with, with the prices. Mm. But I think from a logistical perspective, this one is the favourite. But, you know, these massive tailbacks that you sometimes get, were there thoughts at the time that we need a larger tunnel, like three lanes on both sides? <laughs> well, in fact, it was almost the other way round because... The government, while we were negotiating for the tunnel, the government suddenly changed their stance and said we would have to uh, buy rather than lease the 
toll plaza area and all of the approaches. And that, of course, would have changed the economics of the tunnel altogether. We said, fine, okay, if you do that, we'll only build one lane each way. <laughs> so and at that time, the Commissioner of Transport was a far-sighted man called Dennis Bray. And, oh, yes. And he said, look, this is ridiculous. So he was able to get the government to change it back so that the area where the toll plaza is and everything would be leased. And so we didn't, we wouldn't have to pay full price for the land. And so we went back to two lanes, two lanes. Dennis Bray spent most of his career in government here in Hong Kong. He wrote Hong Kong Metamorphosis about his life, if you'd like to read that. So he's transport commissioner at this time. Yes, yes he is. How much did all of this cost? Well, the biggest project before we came along was the Kai Tak runway, which was 75 million. We negotiated a price with the Costains of 212 million dollars. And we completed it within that figure. Steel, sand for the concrete, was it all produced in Hong Kong? The sand, I think, would not have been produced in Hong Kong because it would have been too much thought it would have been brought in from China under the sand monopoly. Under Mr. There? Henry Falk, the sand monopoly. The sand monopoly was negotiated with China. And it was held by Mr. Henry Falk, uh, Yao Wing. So all your sand had to come from come China? From China, yeah. And most building sand came from China because it was very expensive otherwise to wash it, etc. You couldn't have uh, buildings with salt sands there, otherwise it would corrode the steel. Yeah, so, yeah, but that was normal at the time. So Mr. Henry Falk? So is that Timothy Falk's dad? It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wing. And uh, he was um, also very supportive and a, a great friend. Yeah, so, and mm. the steel? The steel came from Britain. Right. Of course. It was under the export uh, scheme in, in the UK. So when the steel came, did it, was it already in shape? No, no. It would be rolled and, uh, uh -huh. and uh, put into shape in Hong Kong, come in, in steel sheets. You were saying that obviously you did with the Yamade Ferry, with the Star Ferry, owned by Jardine. Yes. Jardine's controlled uh, the Wharf Company and the Wharf Company controlled the Star right. Ferry. Right, but you know, you're saying that they uh, obviously were lobbying against because it was against their interests. Uh, did they come round? No, <laughs> no they didn't. Uh, actually, the government said to us, look, in order to keep the peace, you should offer a share of the company, both to Jardines and to the Yamati Ferry Company. And they were then in a very difficult position because if they accepted the share, then they knew the project would go through. And if they didn't accept the, the share, there was a possibility it wouldn't go through. And both of them turned it down. Interesting competition. Yes. It was. Always been an yeah. aspect of Hong Kong, hasn't mm, it? Yeah, it was. Cross Harbour Tunnel is what I came to talk to you about. Once you've done a project like that and you had this company together, did you then go on to do other projects in Hong Kong? I was involved. I was, I was basically had the same job after I'd left Wheelock Marden for the Eastern Harbour Tunnel because the Eastern Harbour Tunnel was built in a slightly different way. That was built by a consortium, but primarily Kumagagumi, who was the main contractor, they needed somebody, really, who was independent, who could decide whether to make the payments or not. So I was actually asked by the shareholders of the Eastern Harbour Tunnel to play that role, which I did. And with the Eastern Harbour Tunnel, what, what sort of method was used? The same, immersed tube. 
but there was a dry dock built at Chapoling, uh, that which is on the Kowloon side of the current Eastern Harbour Tunnel. And so they constructed the units, in that case in concrete, and because they couldn't launch them as we had done for the Cross Harbour Tunnel, but it was like in a dry dock. So when they wanted to float them out, they would just flood the dry dock and then float, float them out that way. And then they would dewater the dry dock and start on the next unit. And that was done by Kumagai Gumi from Japan. So not one tunnel, but two tunnels. My thanks to Robbie Brothers sharing his memories of the Cross Harbour Tunnel Project. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Heritage.